Today, a question about representation or incarnation. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Now, there is a fairly substantial theological, sort of missional-oriented debate uh, about the question of representation and incarnation. Those two terms put in opposition to each other as ways of doing ministry or understanding Christianity or applying the ministries of a church or a mission or so on. There is a body of literature about it. And I've read some of that, uh, and I am aware of that debate. I am by no means an expert on this. We have some on faculty at Criswell College who are experts on this. Uh, and uh, if we were going to do the show strictly about that, I would have them on, and I would interview them, and I would talk about all the resources that make this such a uh, lively discussion in some ways. And uh, it does create a divergence among some believers. But that's not my purpose today. Uh, there is actually a specific application I want to make on the basis of the broad or generally understood divide between the way of understanding Christianity that says we represent Christ and the way of understanding Christianity that says we are the incarnation of Christ. And you can hear the difference between those two ideas or concepts just in their titles. Uh, but I, I, So what I want to do is explain a little bit of that difference to give us a footing, which I think will, will take about half of the topic just to sort of get our footing. But then I want to go from there to how, to how it applies to the way we do ministry. So that's the idea of talking about representational and incarnational Christianity, uh, not, not just representational ministry or incarnational ministry or evangelism or missions or whatever it is uh, you would put in that nominal position. So on this one, I, I really want to talk about it broadly in terms of our Christianity as a whole. So let me start with the first one that's so easy to understand because it's where probably most of us are, and, I, and I, I know we're not all the same. I know not everybody's in the same denomination. We're not all thinking about things in exactly the same way, and uh, some of you may not even be believers who are listening. I get that, uh, and you would come from a different perspective, but you can understand what the difference is here, and it might even help you understand where different Christians are coming from when we seem to contradict each other. Uh, some of it comes from a different understanding of this issue. So let me take the easy one, where I think most Christians come from, or at least the ones I've been around, uh, and that's representational Christianity and what we mean by that. So first, on the good side of representational Christianity, and I mean by that just sort of the obvious and, you know, there's no real disagreement about this, even from somebody who would say they are incarnational, 
there is a reason that we call this representational Christianity. And again, it's not it's not complicated. We are representing, representing the message of Christ about Christ uh, is the basic idea behind this way of understanding it. And so on the good side, it's it's just obvious that that's what we do in terms of the way we normally understand the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, so, and if you just think about what's going on in that commission, the 11 disciples, they go to Galilee. I'm reading from Matthew 28, verse 16, slight paraphrase. They go to the mountain, which Jesus had directed them to go to. And when they see him, they worship him, although some are having doubts, but they're worshiping him. And Jesus comes and says to them, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, not to you, to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, not, so it's just making disciples, making followers, making students of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of, and then it comes back to the identity of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And and all of that's fine. All of that you could take if you were incarnational. You could easily take it and say, well, I can explain that in an incarnational sense. That's fine. But you add the last phrase to it, and it really adds weight to it. And it is, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And again, it's not that you can't explain all of this in the opposite terms as well, but sort of a prima facie reading of that is, you can go tell people about me and the things I taught, and I'll be with you while you're doing that. You are only an intermediary. You are the messenger of the message that I have already given you, and you tell people about the life that I lived. And because you're teaching them objective material about the life that I lived, they will understand what it means to be a Christian. That's what it's about. Now, of course, you will exemplify the things that it means to be a faithful follower of the things that I taught and the things that I lived, but you're just imitating me in some ways and then letting people learn about me by the things they see you doing. You get the picture. That's representational Christianity in a simple sense. And it's the thing that seems to be affirmed by Peter's approach at Pentecost, because after Jesus has risen, after he's ascended into the heavens and the the apostles are left in Jerusalem waiting for the promise of the Father in Acts 1, you know, by the time you get to Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost is specifically and strictly about the content of Jesus' ministry and death and then resurrection. And that's it. That's the content of the message. He doesn't say, and look how you've seen that demonstrated in what we're doing. The only things they do that's even related, that that they do that's even related to that is uh, the miracle, the, you know, the tongues that settle on them at the beginning in order simply to draw the crowd together and say, we ought to figure out what's going on with these guys. And then they say, why are you surprised by this? I mean, Jesus has been going around doing signs since the beginning of his ministry and so on. And the same in Paul's sermon at Athens. When Paul is in Athens, he's not living in a way that says to people, oh, we should figure out what's so profoundly different about this man from the Stoics and the Epicureans. That's not what what stirs the crowd. That's not what invites their interest. And it's not what gets a response from anyone. Being that, and and by the way, that was a mischaracterization of incarnation too. So I, I haven't even gotten to that side yet. 
So that's a little bit of an unfair statement. I recognize that. But it's not an unfair assessment of this side of it, that Paul is doing something representational here. He's simply standing there and saying, I'm a messenger about a man who rose from the dead in Judea. Because in Acts 17, when he says, you know, he, he refers to all of their prophets. He refers to their poets, their philosophers. You know, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's talking about how God is something beyond this material world and beyond the idols that they have set up, the statues, the images that they've created. He's not an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Not when they heard, oh, this profound analysis of the poets of the Greeks, or when they heard this profound judgment statement. Not, none of that. It's when they hear about the resurrection of the dead that some mocked, but others say, hmm, we should hear him again about this. And those are the ones who become the followers. Now, again, I'm, I'm mischaracterizing what the opposite side is, but on this side of it, representation, we're just here to represent Christ. That's an easy picture for most of us as believers to adopt of our calling. We just teach people about what Jesus said and did during his life. The better we can imitate that, the more authentic they'll believe we are in the testimony we're giving about him. But it's not really about us. It's just about him. You know, let's just talk about what happened with Jesus. Now, on the weak side of that, and this is apparent in the things I was just saying just now, on the weak side of that representational understanding of Christianity, and again, this would be a shallow form of representational Christianity. It's not like there's a hard, cold line and you have to be one or the other and you can't even talk about the opposite side. That's not the way it is. But, but, I, but in order for us to draw the conclusion, I want to emphasize the difference so I want to take the black and white parts of this on one side and the other of it and really emphasize the silhouetting that's present, right? So on the weak side of representational Christianity in its isolation as a silhouette, right, it is this, that words alone simply don't make for a witness. No one believes the testimony of someone who's not willing to put their own life behind the things that they're saying. You should invest in this stock. Have you invested in it? No. Well, <laughs> no, but I mean, you've got money. You should invest in it. Well, you know, I don't think so. I'll take advice from somebody who's willing to live it out, right? So the same thing with this. You say, I should follow Jesus, but you're not doing anything that he taught. Uh, it's the old line from, I believe, Mohandas Gandhi, which is, I would have been a Christian if I had ever met one, you know, that idea. So we know that. All of us know that. Words alone don't make for a witness. And in, this, in that vein, Timothy is commanded not just to teach, but to set an example. You know, the passage in 1 Timothy 4 that we always cite for this young man, 
be an example of the believers in speech and conduct, love, faith, and morality. In all those ways, you, you, have to, you have to practice it. You have to live it out. Now, there's much more to saying, oh, I have an incarnational understanding of the contextualization of Christianity. There's a lot more to that than simply saying, I'm actually going to live the things I say I believe, but I, but I want to demonstrate that in a moment to clarify it. So again, just on the silhouette side of representational Christianity, we would have to acknowledge that you, you have to at least add to the teaching, to the representation of the message, to the pointing back to the life of Christ and saying, that's the only thing that matters. You at least have to add to that something in, in the way we actually conduct ourselves and live and the values we adopt and demonstrate that makes it sincere. I think, I think everybody would acknowledge that. And, but, but further on the, and that, but that, that reveals just in the fact that we acknowledge that it reveals sort of the weakness of limiting our understanding of what we're trying to accomplish with Christianity to the representation of the message side of the board. So if you take Abelard's emphasis, you know, so Abelard and Anselm were sort of on opposite sides of interpreting atonement uh, how we're reconciled to God by the work of Christ, the ministry of Christ. Uh, and so, and this is historically, I mean, we're going all the way back to the, before the 12th century, you know, in the 1100, I mean, to the 12th century or so. If you take Abelard's emphasis on moral example, and that's why I chose him, he's just sort of this uh, paragon of those who embrace the idea of uh, the moral example theory of atonement, this way of understanding that we're redeemed by the example that Christ set for us and the things that transform our lives out of what we learn from the model of Christ. So, and that's an understatement of it, but but along those lines. So if you take Abelard's emphasis on the, on the moral example seriously, then the real impact of the gospel would be would be obscured, at least obscured, maybe entirely lost, if it were to become more about words than about actions. Now, again, I'm, I'm saying if you started from Abelard's perspective, which we don't. Most people don't start from that perspective. And yet you do get that there is something there, right? There's something really valuable there. Because when people examine Christianity from the outside— they don't examine it on the technical details of whether it contains contradictions or inconsistencies of some kind. They will mock that in some way or make a joke of it. But when people outside of Christianity question Christianity itself, it is specifically because Christians are hypocrites. And when you look at people who don't live what they're saying, and your response to that is to say, well, then what they're saying doesn't make any difference. Then you realize that the impact of the gospel obviously has to be beyond words. Ooh, look, I've learned to repeat all the words that are in the gospels. That wouldn't be meaningful at all if life hasn't changed as a result of the gospel. And if life has to change as a result of the gospel, then there has to be some meteor part of the gospel that's contained in the transformation it works in our material lives in this world than just, oh, well, oh, and on the side, by the way, my, my behavior's also changed. 
there, there must be something more to it than that. Now, much more is what we need to talk about next, but you get the idea. So, I mean, I, I think the emphasis of talking about the representational side here is obviously the strengths. This is the message. This is the gospel. This is Paul saying, you know, if a person's going to believe, they have to hear, and how are they going to hear without a preacher? And so how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and so on. That bring the, you know, bring the good tidings to us. All of that message from Paul or from Isaiah in the Old Testament, whom he's quoting, all of those are a testimony to the value of the message itself. So I'm I'm good with that. I'm fine with that. And again, I'm not I'm not diving into the reality of the debate between representational and incarnational contextualization. Uh, for those of you who are serious about those topics, this is just skimming the top uh, again to lay the groundwork for something I want us to understand about how we practice our Christianity in community, in church together. And so that's where we ultimately want to end up. So on the on the one side, I was trying to just give an easy sort of grasp of the representational way of talking about Christianity. The one that's less familiar to us or we use less often, at least in my circles, maybe not yours, uh, is incarnational Christianity. And this is slightly different. And again, the more important part of this discussion recently, and I, this is not even that recent as a debate. I mean, a dozen years ago, this was a kind of hot topic. Uh, where, where the, the, and this is the context in which I've heard about it, also the context in which I've heard about it is contextualization. Uh, it's in discussions about contextualization, which means, you know, by contextualization, you mean when you're going to go do ministry among people who uh, live in a different culture than you grew up in, then you need to contextualize your message to them. So you don't just say the same things, use the same metaphors, uh, wear the same clothes that you wore uh, when you were living in Texas. If you're going to go do ministry in China or India, uh, you need to contextualize. You need to understand what families and marriage looks like for them and what schooling looks like for them and what animals they're familiar with and not familiar with and what language they speak and what their historical documents are and so on like that. The idea that you would go to India and create a church that's going to make America great again uh, would be a lack of contextualization, you know? So contextualization has, and certainly people who are representational or incarnational in their understanding of this would believe you have to contextualize. This is why you translate, uh, you know, you're by translating, even just, even just doing services in English in America instead of doing them in Latin uh, is evidence of contextualization. So that's not the debate whether to contextualize or not. It's how you contextualize and to what extent you contextualize that invites this conversation about how much of our understanding about Christianity is actually rooted in us simply understanding the message of it and communicating that and people embracing that message, and how much of it is actually us incarnating the gospel in this life, incarnating, actually experiencing in the flesh the presence of God among people who don't know him so that they meet Christ because they meet us. You get the idea of the language of incarnation, and obviously in contextualization, the idea is that Jesus takes on human flesh. 
So a believer who wants to go and serve like Christ was the ultimate missionary by coming into the world and becoming a man, you become Chinese or you become Indian or you become Pakistani or you become, and you know, you can, you've, you've heard some of these debates probably in things like the camel method. Uh, you become a person who knows the Quran. And again, I'm not, a, I'm not advocating. I'm also not trying to argue against it right now. I'm just trying to say this is where the debate is held. You know, for, I think most people would put this in the strongly incarnational category that when a person were to, if a person were to move to the Middle East and say, I'm going to learn to speak Arabic and I'm going to grow my beard and I'm going to start wearing all the regalia that goes with living in Arabia or somewhere else, then, and then I'm going to use the Quran. I'm going to embrace the Quran as a means for telling people about the incarnation of Christ but I'm going to live it out in front of them as an Arab among them, right? That would be a pretty strong form. And for people who witness, not with Scripture, not meaning not the Bible, but with the Quran instead, that would be a pretty strongly incarnational perspective of this, okay? So you get the idea in terms of contextualization where the divide would be had. So what I want to do is pull that back to just talking about Christianity more generally and how we live things out. So on the good side of the understanding of Christianity, it would be more incarnational. And again, I, I think it might be unclear to you how strong this divide could be. So let me caricature it, again, exaggerate it, silhouette it for a second. That on the representational side, what I would be uh, putting up on the, as a silhouette would just be a verse of scripture or a list of propositions to remember about what Christianity is. And then do you embrace these or not? And if you embrace them, oh, well, then now you're a Christian. And I don't mean by that, eh, you just intellectually embrace Christianity. But I mean, in your heart, you have genuine faith that these propositions are true, and you're putting your heart and soul in the hands of God on the basis of these propositions, right? So that kind of Christianity. Now, again, it's a character and a silhouette of representational Christianity. On the incarnational side, it would be more than simply saying, oh, plus we're going to live it out. On the incarnational side, and again, a silhouette, a caricature, on the incarnational side would be saying, no, 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 I'm going to become Christ for my neighborhood. My sacrifice is going to bring people to know God by what I give up on their behalf. And I don't mean by that a person has a Christ complex or they think they're overly important. I mean, they really are willing to lay down their lives for the people around them. Think Mother Teresa right? So we don't look at her and say, oh, what kind of messianic complex did she have? We look at her and say, wow, that's how we ought to lay down our lives, to serve the Father on behalf of the people that he loves, right? So in that sense, do you become Christ for your neighbor? And that can become a really strong form, take on a really strong form, even theologically, where yes, there was one supreme messiah, but every Messiah is redeeming his people kind of thing. Now, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go that far. But in caricaturing what, what kind of incarnational Christianity I'm talking about, that's what I want us to understand. So on the good side, you know, it's in, in just going back to the Great Commission language that we read a moment ago. It's in this statement, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. So he's in us, and we're following his commands, and because people learn from our obedience and from his presence in us, then our messaging isn't about a message of words. Our messaging is living our Christianity in front of other people. Again, I'm not trying to embrace one side or the other. Obviously, I'm more representational than incarnational. I mean, it's not like rocket science to figure out where I come from. I teach at a college. I'm the president at a college, and higher ed's hugely important to me. So, you know, it's not rocket science to figure out where I am. However, I have a lot of respect for the incarnational side of things. I just think our way of applying it could be better if we were to focus more, well, we'll talk about it at the end of the discussion that we're having about this. So, on the good side, even in the Great Commission, you can find it. On the good side, equally, in you know Stephen's sacrifice in Acts chapter seven is you know it's it's prime you know messianic behavior. He's doing exa- he in fact in his sermon he is the end of the sermon. Uh, and if you're not familiar with this sermon, I, that doesn't mean as much to you. But I mean, when he begins his sermon, he starts at Abraham. And he works through one messianic figure after another until he gets through David to Christ. And in each messianic figure, he makes the point that these people, including Moses twice and David twice, he he makes the point that in each of these messianic figures, like Joseph in Egypt, they lay down their lives on behalf of the people that God has sent them to redeem. They, they, They are rejected by the very people they're sent to redeem, and God saves those people through the rejection that they experience. It is a messianic act. And then here's Stephen, who's doing exactly that in front of them after Christ. He tells them about Christ, and they're so angry they do to him, the one who's preaching to them, including Saul, who's standing there. They lay their Remember, they lay their clothes at Saul's feet. I'll, I'll read that to you later. Maybe not this episode, because it looks like it's going to go beyond one episode. But the point is, when we talk about Saul being there, I mean, Saul is being redeemed by what he's seeing happen right in front of him, even with Stephen. So with all of that said, there is an incarnational aspect of what we see in somebody's obedience like Stephen, who lives out being a Christ figure in front of the Jews in Jerusalem. James and Peter, when you go through Acts 12, I mean, James ends up dead, Peter's in jail, and then released from the jail in this image of someone being delivered from beneath the earth, you know? In all of that, you have this replication of the messianic presence. And so incarnation would not be a hard way to read Acts 12. Uh, You can go look at the stories and see it, but, you know, at the very beginning of the chapter, they kill James, and then they're trying to kill Peter by the end of the chapter. But the reality is God preserves them, and Herod uh, preserves Peter, and Herod is the one who ends up dead. And Peter is sort of a, in that story between James and Peter, if you're reading it in literary terms, and of course I believe it literally, but if you're reading it in literary terms, Peter is the resurrected James, you know? They're trying to kill the leaders of the church. They kill James, and Peter emerges, and he's even a stronger leader. So they end up with something worse than they had before, and that's sort of the picture of the resurrection. On the weak side of an incarnational interpretation of Christianity like that is that they just, they don't explain 
the idea that I'm just going to live it out and people are going to see. Now, I've heard many caricatures, so I don't want you to think this is the one I'm doing. I've heard many caricatures of this version of Christianity that says, you know, it's the, what's the line that people say? It's a funny line, like, you know, uh, always uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words or something like that. And so people make fun of that, and for good reason. They make fun of it with sort of the lifestyle evangelism attacks. You know, well, you you believe in lifestyle evangelism, like you're just going to live a certain way, and somebody's just going to suddenly fall down on their face and repent before God. It's not that, of course. I mean, the whole idea is that you do more than just speak the words. You actually live it out, and you do more than even care about whether you're speaking the words. You want to make sure that people are seeing the things that the gospel means to Christians. And then you trust God in your life or someone else's life to give you opportunity to share with people the content of the gospel. That's how I actually understand people to be doing stuff like that. I'll talk more about that later as well. But there is still this reality that for some who would adopt the incarnational approach and talking about an incarnational approach to Christianity, it would be easy to say, the words don't matter. I'm just going to live it. And people are going to be redeemed in this Abelardian sense of moral example. They're going to see the example in me. And so their lives are going to be different and their lives are going to be different. Maybe they end up going to church too. But the point is that their life is now changed. Their moral, their, 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 their morality has changed because of the example that I've given them. And again, that's just using the moral example theory, more, more of that another time. But, but here's the weak side of that incarnational approach. Examples, you know, us living it out and demonstrating it and all that kind of stuff, they don't explain the thing that I was quoting to you earlier, or at least referencing to you earlier, from Romans 10, where Paul talks about the importance of the words themselves. Let me say it again. How then, these are Paul's words, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And he even goes beyond that to say, and the faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the, and it's words of God. The word of God is not, it's not logos to theu. It's not, it's not the generic, you know, pronouncements of God throughout all of history. It is the not the order of God, it's the sayings of God, the rhema to theo. It's these pronouncement that God makes. So you you can't receive the gospel without the words in Romans 10. And you just you can't explain that thoroughly in this, again, heavily caricatured view, silhouetted view of incarnational Christianity that I'm talking about right now. If you if you were to take on the opposite side of Abelard, if you were to take Anselm's emphasis on satisfaction. That's the idea that we carry a lot into contemporary Christianity of substitutionary atonement or forensic justification, uh, that God makes things right for us because they're made right in Christ. And so he takes our place and so on. If you take that kind of emphasis on satisfaction, that the Father is now satisfied that our injustice has been paid for and that justice has been done because of what Christ accomplishes on the cross, if you take that approach on satisfaction seriously, then the gospel itself would be lost, or again, at least obscured, like I was saying with Abelard on the opposite side, if it isn't first and foremost simply a telling of Jesus' story. We just tell Jesus' story. And yeah, part of the way we tell that story is by living it out. But even living it out, we're just trying to say to people, hey, the only reason I live this way is because 
this man changed my life. Not just because he lived that way and I'm imitating him. This man changed my life, changed my ability to live it out. Okay, so you've got the broad picture of what I'm talking about. So let's take a broader approach to the incarnational view of Christianity. And again, I'm going beyond uh, articles that I've looked at from the last couple of decades, uh, do- couple of dozen, really the last dozen years or so that I've been reading about this kind of stuff. Going beyond that and just talking in general about literary displays of Christ and the way history and art talks about the Messiah. And, and it's just, it's everywhere in our culture. And you have to go beyond these kinds of topics to understand what incarnational Christianity is about. You know, if you if you watch DC's comics, you know, the Superman, Batman type characters, if you read a Ralph Ellison and the Invisible Man, uh, if you read a short story by Kurt Vonnegut, the, you know, the Harrison Bergeron story, then you're reading a messianic story. You're reading stories that are designed to show what it would mean for the Messiah to live in our presence, right? To live in our world, you know, DC's cartoon world. Uh, what's the word? Not cartoon, comics world uh, or whatever. Uh, but but also Ralph Ellison, yeah, in our world, in the, in the black man's world in America or in Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron in the future, uh, the projected sort of not quite apocalyptic uh, world of Harrison Bergeron. But it's our world. What what does a Messiah look like? Those are incarnations of the Messiah. They are actually living out being the Messiah. But they're also simply metaphorical, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So generically, what you see in those Messiahs is what you would mean by saying, well, we're going to incarnate Christianity. And it would be these kinds of characteristics. These are, and it's, and this is true about those characters I just named, but it would also be true about anybody who said, I want to be an incarnation of Christ in this world. So it would be paying a steep personal price for whatever it is they're doing, whatever it is you're doing, right? And so this is the Jesus. You know, I, I don't even have a, 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 the foxes have dens, the birds have nests. I don't even have a, a place to lay my head. He doesn't have a piece of property that belongs to him. He doesn't have any of those things. And we had that discussion another day, so I won't come back to that one. But paying, so there's number one, paying a steep personal price for whatever it is they're doing. Number two, their actions either do or could redeem the people they interact with. What they are doing brings some kind of atonement. This person dies and therefore uh, the abuse of the corporation ends, you know. This person sacrifices their career and therefore uh, this union is formed and all the other people receive better pay, but they lost their job in the process. You know, that kind of stuff, right? So their actions themselves bring about some kind of redemption for the people they're interacting with. And then they're rejected by the very same people that they could help or that they are helping, whether they actually get to or not. And this is, you know, the, they need, they, this is the hero they need, not the hero they want kind of line from Batman, which I, I won't get right because I just don't keep up with that stuff well enough. But I know everybody else does. So I thought I should use that as an illustration. Anyway, and then uh, there are other characteristics too, you know, where 
they're parentless, you know, sort of like the Melchizedek type thing. Uh, they're strangers. They're not from around here, right? Starman, the, they're wanderers. The, they're going from one village to the next and so on. And they're reluctant. Again, not one I'll get into right now, but we've talked about it on, on, this, uh, on this podcast before in a different episode uh, on the reluctance of the Messiah. That's built into the Garden of Gethsemane for those who didn't get to hear another episode where that was present. Daisy will link to whatever episode that was. She'll find it and put it in our links on our website. So anyway, generically, those are some of the characteristics uh, that you would expect to find in, in someone who is going to adopt an incarnational perspective or an incarnational approach to living out Christianity, right? But, but I do want to make this point, this is important, because all of those were simply literary examples, right? So let me just make this point. Those would all be taken simply as modernizations of the Christian story, but then, you know, cloaked in a contemporary environment, sort of like doing sci-fi so that you can do a Western, but do it in the new world instead. So Star Wars doing Westerns, you know, kind of stuff. So those are just modernizations, and they're metaphors of what the Messiah would be if he were in this world. Uh, They can provide a strong, so, but let me give you this instead. A strong, and by strong, I don't mean good. I just mean heavily applied. It might be good, might not be but a strong interpretation of incarnational Christianity might be taken actually to replace the historical incarnation with a contemporary one. That one becomes something more platonic. And uh, by platonic, I mean literally following Plato's philosophy, not, oh, we're friends, but we don't do anything, you know, not that kind of platonic. Although if you take platonic love, you would understand what I mean by platonic by this kind of Plato. Plato's instantiations are like this. Um, This is Plato. So I'm I'm only going to explain Plato for a minute, so don't abandon me. I I won't be here for very long. But, But, you know, the way Plato understands the world, there are forms, meaning eternal realities that never change, and they're not material. It's just sort of the definition of a thing. So tableness is just tableness. And it doesn't matter if there are no tables in the world. It still is what it is. And then when you find a table, the reason it's a table is because the form of tableness has been instantiated in the material world. And it doesn't matter what you do with that table. What matters is that that table is embodying or instantiating, you know, it's incarnate, uh, a version, an incarnate version of the eternal and invisible essence of the thing, which would be the form that's up there in the heavens. So that's a way of understanding that things have actual meaning and that they have a way they ought to be. So it's actually a fairly important concept, and most believers would agree. It's a really important concept for us. There is a thing we ought to become, and God has created that for eternity, and if we don't measure up to it, we failed. You're pretty platonic when you say things like that. Okay, all that said, now I know you could be Aristotelian too. For people who are out there in Thomistic, don't stress out on me. I know the dualism's not the same thing as hylomorphism, blah, blah, blah. I'm not doing philosophy today, so just back off, okay? Okay, so anyway, for those of you who don't know what any of those words mean, you are blessed for not knowing, and it's not a problem. I'm joking because I love those words, and I think they're really important. Ah, I got to get out of this hole. Okay, so let me climb back up here and start talking about this again. So in this case, what I mean is incarnation if you understood it in Plato's kind of way and in this very strong form, would mean that anybody who shows up 
to live out the messianic life is instantiating the Messiah, that you are the Messiah in this world at that time. And you could see how that could become sort of a substitution for the importance of the historical reality of Christ and the sacrifice he made once and for all, and then the resurrection that he actually embodied in this world by walking out of the grave, right? That becomes somehow less, or that's an artificial statement. Somebody that's incarnational would not say, well, that's no less important. It's just that this is more important. This becomes equally important. They, they would say that, so just to be fair. But you can understand why somebody on my side would look at it and go, well, yeah, but you're making it now where it's not consummately and universally about that one historical event. So you can see why people would say that. And in Plato, by the way, what that turns into in the image of love is this. You know, love is eternal. It's, it's essential. It's got a form. It's got a nature. And yeah, you fall into love with somebody down here in the world. And whoever that is, doesn't really matter. I mean, you can move from one person to the next because it's just an instantiation of the essence of the love that is eternal. And Plato's way is even harsher than that. And some of the ways that that manifests in in what he would see in society fulfilling it, you know, corporate marriages, people just, you know, all the 18-year-olds marrying all the other 18-year-olds and just having babies and stuff. That kind of view of life is, you know, comes from his way of understanding instantiation. Okay, all that said, I'm not saying incarnation embraces any of that stuff, but in comparison, it's the same idea. The, the reality that's eternal are, is the holiness of God or the love of God or uh, these values that are so important, and then those become incarnate in whoever's living in front of you and demonstrating those realities in front of you. And so incarnation could be extended. Well, it's not normally. Could, but in this caricature, I'm, I'm saying it could be, extended to include to, to the nature of redemption and atonement itself. So that in, 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 the mod, in, the, in this model, the identification, the selflessness, peacefulness, service, the sacrifice of the Christian, and especially in terms of contextualization, the Christian missionary, that would be what redeems the people who are being served. And maybe it has reference to Christ and the historical Christ and the resurrection and all that, but the redemption comes through that person. And, and I have, I do know missionary stories that are very close to that, very close. Uh, and the idea that we recognize that sometimes, naming our churches after people because of what they sacrificed in order to bring new life to us. Now, to be fair, I don't hear anyone in the evangelical world actually by that level of substituting current Christians' redemptive actions for the historical redemptive work that Christ did on the cross. It doesn't actually become a substitute for it. Uh, but it, it, can, it can really get close to that. So anyway, so that, that's why there's some debate about it, and uh, there's a lot of back and forth among those who are focused on figuring out models of contextualization for Christianity on the mission field, especially in cross-cultural contexts inherently, the discussion has to be had. How far do you go? How, how far do you understand the commitment you make to those people to be a part 
of what brings about, and it's, and it's not even foreign language biblically. I mean, Paul himself saying, I could wish myself accursed. That language is him taking on the demeanor of Christ for the people he wants to, and then I guess it depends on how you finish the sentence, to redeem or to see redeemed, you know, and, and obviously he wants to see them redeemed. So my point is, I understand why the debate is had. Now, my discussion has not been anywhere near at high enough a level for us to pretend that we're having the debate about representational or incarnational forms of contextualization for Christianity. That's not what I was doing. I'm not really competent to do that. I said that right at the beginning of the conversation today. But, but what, I, what I have been wanting to do is point out that we have an obligation, a responsibility as believers that goes beyond just pronouncing words. We know that. That's easy. We, we understand that. And what I hear from believers brings that kind of balance to what I think most people are trying to do. Not when I say that, I mean most people who are committed followers of Christ and doing their best to represent the gospel in some way. You know, I mean, not everybody is that. Even those who attend church are not all that. But you know what I mean? People who are committed to being followers of Jesus. What I hear are those who believe in all of Christianity. They believe that those characteristics in his messengers— so they believe everything about Christ. They believe the resurrection. They believe uh, the gospel accounts of what happened while he was here and the apostles' testimony of what ought to happen in the churches. They believe all of that. But they also believe that those characteristics in his messengers are what make it possible for the message about the historical Messiah to be heard and believed. That's where I hear most believers land in their own practical application of what they're trying to do with all of this. I don't think any of that's magic, right? So you say, well, then why'd you have to talk about it for 45 minutes? Well, so, uh, because I think there is something that needs to shift in the way we think about how we are instantiating Christ in the world, about how we're fulfilling the responsibility to 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 be the incarnation of Christ in this world, and there is a responsibility there. As he was, so are, so are we in this world. That kind of language from John, you know, in his epistle. So my point now is to say, obviously, we're not going to finish the discussion today, but to end the discussion today by saying what I want to do in the next episode is talk about the inherent limitation to us trying to adopt an incarnational approach, but also an invitation to a full realization of what the incarnational approach should mean to every believer. And it's different than us simply saying, well, I'm going to live it out and therefore uh, I'll give reality to Christ being in the world. I think it requires more than that. And obviously, if you know me, uh, this is going to mean it involves the community that we need to talk about and how that uh, context is where our incarnational obligation regarding Christianity 
can be fulfilled. So that's where I want us to go next time, and I hope you'll follow me there. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.